old you are, whether you're just the smallest of kids here this morning or whether you're a senior savior on this, we all have experienced disappointments. Uh, looking back, I can remember one particular moment in my sophomore year of high school. I wasn't particularly the smartest guy in my class. That may be a shock to some of you out there. I uh, wasn't, wasn't the brightest academic out there, but, you know, I was an A, B, an occasional C kind of guy. My sister, on the other hand, was a 4.0 straight-A student, and uh, I was kind of always academically living in my sister's shadow. But this particular moment, uh, in my sophomore year, I had U.S. history uh, was the subject, and I just happened to enjoy history, and I can remember actually applying myself in this one moment uh, where uh, we were going to have a test at the end of the week, and I can remember actually taking notes in class and listening to the lecture and preparing diligently for this this test. And I can remember going home, bringing my, actually bringing my textbook home uh, to my house and studying it outside of class. I'm being a little sarcastic here. I wasn't that bad, but uh, I, I actually was trying to do well on this test. And I'm having flashbacks of my mom and dad telling me, Eric, you would be a really good student if you just apply yourself. Right? How many of you ever heard that? You know, you just apply yourself. And uh, this moment I did. I, I remember listening to my mom and dad, and I did. And I can remember getting to the test and being as confident as I could possibly be. I, mem- I, I remember memorizing every note that I took, going back to the textbook and and looking at the subject of chapters eight and nine. And then I can remember having the test in front of me. And this moment as I was working through the test, page one, great, page two, nailed it. And then I can remember flipping the page over to page number three and starting to read the questions. And it just didn't make sense. I I didn't study this. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what this topic is addressing. And apparently, the test was over chapters 8, 9, and 10. And I only prepared for chapters 8 and 9. And therefore, the last page of that test did not go near as well as the previous two. Now, I'm a really good guesser. You know, I can always letter C, right? If in doubt, it was multiple choice. I had all those tricks down, but I didn't do as well as I wanted to going into that test. Why? I was, I was disappointed, and I didn't prepare appropriately. Maybe something on a more serious front. Maybe you've had a relationship in your life that let you down, that disappointed you in some way, shape, or form. Maybe you felt like you might have been a victim of life circumstances. You were laid off from a job that you really enjoyed and that you were good at. For some reason... It didn't work out. Maybe there was a promotion at work on the positive side and you prepared and you knew that you were the most qualified, that you would do the best at this job, yet you were passed over. Somebody else on the team received the promotion and it wasn't you. Have you been disappointed? Maybe kids, mom and dad told you that you would go get ice cream after a particular event. The evening wore on, it got late. And you know what, it just didn't fit into that schedule for that day, and you ended up being disappointed that you weren't able to go savor that nice, sweet, cold ice cream. It sounds really great right now, doesn't it? 
Uh, you've been disappointed, right? We all struggle with this. We all experience our expectations don't match up what, with what reality ended up being. Something didn't work out the way that you had planned it, the way that you thought it should go, and as a result, you were left feeling disappointed. We see that in our text here this afternoon in Genesis chapter number 29. Jacob is cruising along, coming out of chapter number 28. He's coming off this spiritual high. He's just had this spiritual experience, this dream. He saw angels ascending and descending. It was an incredible moment. He was overwhelmed by that so much so that he made a special place that he called Bethel. And at that point, he decides, hey, you know what? It's, it's time to move on. But Jacob is going to struggle and grapple with this reality of disappointment. So he's carrying on in his journey to Haran, right? Uh, he's arrived in, in Paddan Aram to find a wife from Abraham's kinsman. Like I said before, as you've maybe read through this passage earlier in this week, things don't quite go to plan. And in this Old Testament narrative, chapter 29, we're going to find some very unique and universal truths about God and about ourselves as mankind. Um, on the preaching side of things, sometimes when we, I was just talking with Dave this morning, sometimes when we run into a, a true narrative, literally a telling of events, sometimes it's difficult to work through that and say, okay, what's my takeaway here? How do I uh, become a more committed follower of Christ? How do I, uh, what did I learn in this, this telling of events, this story, this Old Testament narrative? Well, I think there's two questions that often we can ask ourselves as we come up to an Old Testament narrative that can help us kind of make sense of what should uh, my takeaway of this passage be. The first one is this. What does this text tell me about God's character? Right? We, we run into a passage. It's a, it's a narrative, just a telling of events. What is the principle or what is the takeaway? What do I learn about specifically the character of God? So I need to approach this passage in that way. The second question that I ask myself is, what does this text tell me about the nature of mankind? So I'm looking, what does this passage tell me about God? And what does it tell me about myself? And in those two simple questions, I can come away from Genesis 29 with some very important realities, some principles, some universal truths, some observations that we can make that I think will be really impactful as we work our way through this passage and as we leave and go our way this afternoon. So the first question is going to really revolve around this idea of God's character and this reality of God's sovereignty. If there's one thing that we can come away from this, this chapter, or really the whole of Genesis for that matter, and you're probably getting tired of us hearing and telling you and preaching about the sovereignty of God, I hope not. I don't think we can ever uh, have that truth uh, revealed to us enough in our, our frail human state. But if there's one takeaway that we can have from this chapter about the character of God in the whole of Genesis, it's this, that God is completely sovereign over all things, over all peoples at all times. God is completely sovereign over all things and over all peoples at all times. 
What an incredible biblical truth to anchor our hearts and minds on during this time that we live in. Is God in control in the midst of a worldwide pandemic? Is God in control in the midst of heightened racial tensions in our country? Is he in control? Is he sovereign over all things, all peoples at all times, even when circumstances around us might indicate that it's not? The reality is that he is. I might not feel like he is. The chaos and circumstances around me that wage on because of a broken and sinful world, those are real. That's that's a true reality. But yet God is using the circumstances in this world to do what? To bring himself glory. And so the sovereignty of God is a universal truth that will anchor our hearts and our minds around this afternoon as we work our way through this chapter. The second question is, what do I see in this text concerning the nature of mankind? The takeaway is this, all of mankind is broken by sin and pursuing our own purposes in life. All of mankind is broken by sin and pursuing our own purposes in life. Do you see that in chapter number 29? I'm going to help us if you don't. But these two truths, the one about God and the one about the nature of mankind, is what will guide us through our text this afternoon. Well, the first part of this answer to our two questions lies in the sovereignty of God. Remember, who is it that chose Jacob to carry on this covenant promise? Who was it? It was God. Yahweh. Elohim, El Shaddai, all these names that we've learned about God all the way through the book of Genesis. It is he, God, that chose Jacob. And we may uh, think that God might have made a mistake as we read our way through this uh, book and we see the life of Jacob. And as we think back on his father, Isaac, and we think back on his father, Abraham, they all have had moments of what? Deep failure. Their sin nature has been exposed in very real and tangible ways. So this reality that all of mankind, including those that are in covenant promise and covenant relationship with God, are still broken by sin and many times pursuing our own way. But it is God in his sovereignty that has chosen Jacob as the child of the covenant promise. Even before he and Esau were even born, God foretold that it was Jacob that would be chosen. We see this all the way back in Genesis 25, verse number 23. Interesting enough, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul would use this Old Testament narrative of Jacob and Esau to argue that God is sovereign and he alone has the right to choose or not to choose any one of us for salvation before we were even born. Paul will go on in the book of Romans to make his appeal for the reality of the sovereignty of God by way of the life of Jacob and Esau. Paul says in verse number 11 of chapter 9, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Verse 12, she was told, meaning Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul says, by no means. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See, friends, the sovereignty of God is exercised by God for the sole purpose of maximizing his glory in this world. And as the only omniscient one, as we learned last week, he alone determines the best path to arrive at that destination. And friends, get this. Oftentimes, the best path to maximize his glory in this world is through my disappointments. It's God using my perceived failures in life and the circumstances that are around me. It's God using the ashes of that to make something beautiful and something great that could have never come about by my own way and by my own understanding. This idea seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? How can a good God, a loving God, use my disappointments in my life to bring him glory? Friends, although it may seem a bit unlikely, a bit unique or even unfair from our feeble and fallible perspective, this reality that God uses the disappointments of mankind to maximize his glory in this world actually falls perfectly in line with his story of redemption that we've seen in the pages of Genesis and that we'll see unfold through the entirety of Scripture in both Old Testaments and New Testaments. God uses disappointment in my life to maximize his glory and to bring about his perfect will. See, friends, God is still in the business of redeeming and reconciling sinful mankind to himself. Do you believe that this, this afternoon? I keep wanting to say this morning. Do you believe that this afternoon? God is still in the business of redeeming and reconciling sinful mankind to himself. In a sense, friends, if we think back on disappointment, could we not say that God's perfect creation disappointed himself? In the Garden of Eden, he gave us that one law, that one rule, but yet what did we do? We rebelled. We chose our own way and our understanding. And as a result, we broke fellowship and relationship with God because of sin. What did God do in response to that? He didn't write us off. He didn't move on to something else. God leaned in. He pursued. He loved. He wasn't caught off guard by our sin. He wasn't scrambling for some solution to make it better based off of our failure. He wasn't reactive to our decision to choose our own way. He simply stayed the course that he established before the foundation of the world, and he chose a remnant. He is still drawing, even today, sinners to repentance. This is a beautiful grace that we have in our day. He is still drawing, even today, sinners to repentance, all because why? He simply wants to be in relationship with his creation. You believe that this afternoon? God desires to be in relationship with you. He desires to fulfill these covenant promises in the midst of Jacob and his household and his family. 
But we're going to see that because all mankind is broken, sin in our way, in our understanding, can complicate the circumstances from our viewpoints. But from God's viewpoint, an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God, sovereign over all things and all peoples at all times, has all things under his control. This, friends, is the sovereignty of God. So this morning, if you're in the midst of a season of disappointment, take heart because disappointment isn't something to rid ourselves of. That may seem surprising, right? When we think of disappointment, we want to move past it. We want to rid ourselves of that feeling and that emotion. It's not something that we would pursue or desire, right? When we experience immediately we want it gone. This is the reality of disappointment. But disappointment isn't something to rid ourselves of. It is very much a Christian reality, a human reality. That whether we are following Christ or not, we will all experience disappointment. And you can even say that there's an opportunity in the midst of disappointment. You see, friends, disappointment uses, or excuse me, it serves as an element of exposure. Disappointment exposes some truths in our life. It exposes that we are not sovereign. And it points us to this reality that only God is. It exposes in us that we do not have all the answers. And it points us to the reality that only God does have all the answers. Disappointment reveals to us and to the world that we are not God. Disappointment exposes and reveals to the world and to us that we are not God. We are not in, have you heard this before, control of our own destiny? Have you heard that phrase before? That's a worldly philosophy that couldn't be further from the truth. We are not as fallible mankind, as God's creation, we are not in control of our own destiny. So what should our response be to these realities? These truths, the fact that God is sovereign over all things and all peoples at all times, it should draw out of us a spirit of humility. It should develop in us a disposition of servanthood and humility that we run to the foot of the cross to receive grace and mercy for our uh, time of help and need. God alone, friends, initiated this covenant relationship with Abraham. God alone chose to pass the blessings of that covenant down to Isaac. And God alone chose in his perfect will to pass that covenant promise on to Jacob and not Esau. We've seen uh, to this point that Jacob was anything but worthy of this covenant promise. But God, being rich in mercy, we remember that out of uh, Ephesians chapter number two. But God being rich in mercy. Can we not see the beauty of our own story of redemption in these pages? Friends, God is a good God to choose any of us. Why? Because we are all broken by sin and pursuing our own way. But despite ourselves, he, meaning God, chose to be in relationship with us. 
This is an incredible reality that we're going to see here in Genesis 29. Jacob, despite himself, is still the benefactor of a covenant relationship with God. Despite his deceitfulness, despite his scheming, despite his taking advantage of others around him, God still chose him. God still pursues him. There's an element of exposure of the grace of God in his realities, friends. So the big idea of our text this morning is this, because God is sovereign over all things. He is able to use our earthly disappointments to maximize his glory and accomplish his perfect will. Because God is sovereign over all things, he is able to use our earthly disappointments to maximize his glory and accomplish his perfect will. This afternoon, we're just going to look at two simple observations in this narrative, and we're going to anchor our hearts and minds throughout our time on the sobering reality of the sovereignty of God. The first observation is this. Jacob is unilaterally planning and pursuing what he desires. Jacob is unilaterally planning and pursuing what he desires. Really, the first 20 verses of chapter number 29 are literally just telling the story of Jacob arriving at Haran, arriving at this well, and then arriving ultimately at Laban's household and moving our way through this narrative. It is here that we're reminded that Jacob will end up residing in the household of Laban in this area for nearly 20 years. And it's here that Jacob's wealth and prosperity will continue to grow. God will continue to be faithful to his covenant promises as through Jacob's direct marriages with Rachel and Leah, the nations of Israel will be established. There's there's a lot going on here by way of laying groundwork for us to understand um, the future chapters of the book of Genesis. But I wonder, as Dave Welch read our scripture reading this morning, as you were following the verses on the screen, or maybe as you read this passage earlier in the week, did you potentially notice something that was missing in these 30 verses? I'm going to give you a moment to think about that. These 30 verses that are read, And that we have recorded here in chapter 29, we notice something that was seemingly missing. This is a little tongue-in-cheek. Nothing is missing in God's Word. Uh, It's perfect and inerrant. But we see in this passage absolutely no mention of whom? Of God. We see in this passage there is no mention of God. I find this interesting. In contrast, let's think back maybe to Abraham's servant who was to go and find a wife for Isaac. If you remember back to Genesis 24, that servant was very mindful of his need for direction and leading by God in these matters of finding this wife for Isaac. In verse number 12 of chapter 24, we read, And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Jumping down to verse 26, it goes on. The man bowed his head and did what? He worshiped the Lord 
and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way of the house of my master's kinsmen. Do we see this posture of worship, this disposition of Jacob designed to be led by the Lord in this pursuit of finding a wife. There's a contrast. Jacob's actions, his mindset, they stand in direct opposition to that of a simple servant of Abraham. And on the heels of this moving spiritual experience, back in chapter 28, the dream at Bethel, Jacob seems has default, seems to have defaulted back to his selfish ways, blinded by only what he desires, which was what? Rachel. So Jacob, in our text here, chapter 29, he arrives at this well. Immediately, what does Jacob do? He questions these shepherds about how they're doing their job. I find that's interesting. Right? He's uh, inserting himself as the authority for how to be the ideal shepherd. He's telling them it's not time to water. You need to send them out back to pa- pasture. And he's telling these shepherds that he doesn't even know. He's ordering around. He's telling them how to do their job. He's asserting his authority and experience in this situation. And then they point out what? They point out Rachel. He inquires about Uh, Laban, Uh, they say that he's well. They point out Rachel, his daughter, coming. She's the shepherdess. Jacob, immediately in a show of masculine confidence, what does he do? He jumps up and goes to this stone that's to be rolled away so that the uh, flocks can be watered. He does that all by himself. And uh, there seems to be indications this would have been a multi-person job based off of some of the historicity of this. But Jacob mans up. Uh, I don't know if he's trying to impress Rachel or whatever the situation is, but he moves a stone. The, the flock is watered. Jacob communicates to Rachel who he is. Actually, first he does what? He kisses her, and then he communicates who he is. That's probably not a good chain of events or order of events there. Guys, just take some notes on that one. Uh, he, he, he kisses her. He tells her who he is. And then Rachel rejoices and they go back to Laban's home where he stays there for how long? He stays there for a month. So there's something that happens in this month. Uh, Again, this is a little bit of uh, conjecture here. But ultimately, uh, many historians and theologians will say that uh, Jacob, during this month, um, uh, there there was an element of, of prospering. To Laban's household and to his flocks and to his his possessions. There was something that involved Jacob's potentially covenant promises that he would be blessed and that he would prosper, that potentially Laban was uh, a benefactor of. And so Laban here approaches Jacob and says, hey, you've been here for a month. Uh, You're you're my bone and my flesh. What's your wage? How can I get you to stick around and stay a little bit longer uh, within my household? And ultimately, Jacob sees this as an opportunity to communicate his intentions. I'm here for really one purpose, and that's to find a wife, and uh, I'd like it to be Rachel. And so ultimately, they come up with a deal. 
that uh, Jacob and Laban agreed to, that Jacob would do what? He would work for the household of Laban for seven years. And at the conclusion of seven years, that Laban would give uh, his daughter, his youngest daughter's hand in marriage to Jacob. There's a clear understanding of this. Uh, again, nothing is lost in translation. Everybody's on the same page that this is the agreement that we're, we're setting out for. And so what does Jacob do? He works. He works faithfully under Laban's household for seven years. It's here in verse number 17. There's now a description of his daughters. Let's read this description in verse number 17. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. See this simple and basic description of these daughters. It's noted that Leah, the older daughter's eyes are described as weak. As we've often pointed out, and Pastor Dave did last week, that uh, the Hebrew can be a challenging language to study. The same word can take on multiple nuances, somewhat different meanings, or different, based off the context. Uh, this actually is a, a similar instance of that, where uh, there's a little indecision on what does it exactly mean by weak. Uh, this word can be used as um, a, a little translation of soft, meaning there just wasn't, there was nothing very striking about uh, the eyes would have been uh, described as a countenance and would have been uh, a representation of her appearance. So it could just be simply that um, there was nothing aesthetically special uh, from a beauty and form that was described by Rachel. But there's also a meaning or an application of this where it literally means they lack physical strength. Her eyes had a physical or medical issue. Um, I would fall more to that uh, translation just based off of um, good company in that, but also just understanding some of the context there, that uh, there's something that just wasn't as um, striking about uh, this older sister, Leah. And so her eyes are described as weak. In verse number 18, it goes on. Uh, let's read that. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. This brings us to verse number 20. Then in verse 21, Jacob reminds Laban that his seven years of service are up. It's over. And he's ready now to have the hand of Rachel in marriage. Let's pick up in verse number 21. And then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went in to her. Laban gave his female servant, Zilpah, and his daughter, uh, to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Why then have you deceived me? So this first point or observation that we looked at this morning is that Jacob unilaterally planned and pursued what he desired. Apart from God's leading, apart from his direction, uh, no prayer, no, no worship, uh, no consultation with the Lord. Jacob is 
at hand. He's pursuing his will. He's pursuing his purpose. And this brings us to our second observation. Jacob is intentionally deceived by Laban, delaying what he desires. Friends, there's a simple principle of sowing and reaping in Scripture. Our men's retreat a few years ago, we dove into these um, principles of sowing in detail. Uh, Jacob hasn't been of the utmost character throughout his dealings in previous chapters. Most commonly see this principle of sowing and reaping from Galatians chapter number six, verse number seven says this, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also, what? Reap. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. I love how Paul tees up that simple universal truth. He says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. There's an element here that God uses our sowing and allowing us to reap what we have sown to draw us closer to himself and to reveal in us these two universal truths that we pointed out this afternoon, that God is sovereign over all things and all peoples at all times. And this second universal truth that all of mankind is broken by sin and pursuing our own way. God uses this principle of sowing and reaping to bring these truths to reality. Has Jacob sown some seed of deception? Has Jacob sown some seed of taking advantage of others and then not getting in return what they expected? Has Jacob behaved in that manner? Absolutely. He's put some of that seed into the ground. And he's watered multiple times. He's fostered that seed of deception. He's done his own thing in his own way, in his own timing. And guess what? It's time for a harvest in Jacob's life. It's time for a harvest in Jacob's life. And it's going to reveal to him, by God's grace, these two realities. God is sovereign. And that all mankind is broken by sin and pursuing our own way. Jacob, in this final section that we'll cover this afternoon is outsmarted in his own game. Friends, Jacob, his father Isaac, and even going back to Abraham, have all sown seeds of deception at times in their interactions with others. Again, I think we would be doing this passage a disjustice without pointing out this reality that Jacob was out Jacobed in our text. And as a result, there are consequences for our actions. It may not come tomorrow. It may not come next week. It may be years down the road before we reap the harvest that we have planted. But there's this universal truth that whatever we sow is what we will reap. Galatians 6 verse 8 says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season 
We will reap if we do not give up. The seeds of deceit have grown again, and now it's time to reap that harvest. Just so I'm careful to not be too much of a spoiler for future sermons, uh, hopefully Dave and Andy can appreciate that, this conflict, the the harvest that will uh, come into Jacob's life, it will carry on for multiple chapters. There's going to be tension. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be all sorts of ungodliness in Jacob's home as a result of the seed that Jacob has sown. So carry into the marriages as Jacob's household becomes a dysfunctional one, to say the least. More to come in future sermons. So this is where our theme of disappointment really starts to take form. Remember, Jacob has been, or excuse me, has really been uh, able to avoid the consequences of his deception up until now. So let's pick up in verse number 22. Verse number 22, it says this. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the morning he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Look at the last phrase of verse number 25. Jacob asked a very simple question. What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Jacob asked Laban a very direct question. Why have you deceived me? Now let's have a small moment of empathy for Jacob. He's grappling with some pretty severe disappointment right now. I mean, this man invested not one year, not two years, seven years of his life working really for one purpose. And that was to be married to Rachel. And here on what was to be the the night of of their marriage, uh, the next morning, uh, he wakes up and realizes that uh, this is a racial. This is Lee. He is extremely devastated, disappointed. And so the question is a good question that he asks Laban, why have you deceived me? But it's a question that is surrounding with irony, is it not? Jacob is asking someone else, why have you deceived me? Jacob is disappointed. Circumstances of life didn't work out the way that he thought they should. And in the moment of Jacob's disappointment, there's an opportunity. Jacob remains steadfast on getting what he desired, why he came to Haran in the first place. So what was Laban's response to Jacob's question? And we see a more... um, sinful nature come out in Laban, right? This reality of the sin nature of mankind is being exposed not just in Jacob, but also in Laban of uh, of a more recent note here. What was his response? And I find this pattern in in my own responses when I'm caught in sin. Uh, What do we often do? We try to justify our 
sin. Try to justify our actions before uh, the one that we've offended. Have you ever been exposed in your sin and you became defensive? Right? You ever been there before? You try to do like all these smoke and mirrors and instead of actually that person looking at the harm and the hurt that, that we caused, we try to draw attention away from us and onto something else. Hopefully I'm not the only one that does that. I, I think that's a universal truth about the sin nature of mankind. Oh, but this is what Laban does. Uh, do you see it there? What, what, is, what is his response? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. So instead of Laban just owning up to this reality that, hey, you know what, Jacob, I hoodwinked you. I pulled one over on you. I know you said Rachel, but I gave you Leah. I'm sorry, forgive me. Restore that relationship. Make it right. He doesn't do that. He points the attention back to a cultural custom. It wasn't me. I wasn't the one in the wrong. It was something else. He justifies his actions. He shifts the blame away from himself as he pins the blame again on this cultural precedent. Laban is a tricky fellow, isn't he? He knows what he committed to, but he also sees an opportunity. He's an opportunistic businessman. He sees an opportunity to do what? To keep Jacob around just a little bit longer. His household has prospered. His flocks have grown. would like that to continue. So Laban sees an opportunity here. Our section ends with Jacob completing an additional seven years of service and Laban giving Rachel to Jacob. And we see this phrase that will certainly carry on in the coming chapters. We see this at the end of uh, verse number 30. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. This will cause much strife and challenging circumstances in the days ahead. And we have on our hands here an official mess. I mean, this is, again, you talk about the, the sin nature of mankind being exposed here. Jacob going rogue, doing his own thing, apart from the grace and the leading of God. We've got Laban deceiving Jacob, taking advantage of Jacob's covenant promise, keeping him within his household for a number of years just so that he could get something of his own gain. You see the brokenness and the effects of sin in this narrative. But can you also start to see that as messed up as these circumstances are, God is still in control. God will go on to use this dysfunctional home, and despite Jacob's love for Rachel, God will use Leah in a substantial way to bring about his perfect will. 
While Rachel struggles to get pregnant, Leah will give birth to six sons and a daughter, half of the tribes of Israel, including the royal tribe of Judah and the priestly tribe of Levi, will call Leah as their mother. So that although Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah, God is using Leah to do what? To bring about his perfect will and in his perfect way and in his perfect timing. Jacob isn't a lost cause. He's not just a rogue benefactor of the covenant promises passed down from generation to generation. Jacob won't remain in this scheming mindset, deceiving person after person. God will grow him. In the latter stages of his life, he will finally recognize that God, the God of Abraham and Isaac, that this God, that was absent from his lips here in chapter 29, he was always working. That God was always there, always guiding. And we see as we fast forward to Genesis chapter number 48, verse 15, Jacob's testimony is this. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. We see God's story of redemption using a broken, sinful mankind to bring about his perfect will. Friends, in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of uncertainty, and in the midst of the chaos of life, let's remember that because God is sovereign over all things, He is able to use our earthly disappointments to maximize his glory and accomplish his perfect will. Friends, I don't know what disappointment you're grappling with in your own life. But whether you can see it today or not, God desires to use our earthly disappointments. Guess what? He cares. Why does he care? Because he's our father. Does a father care about the disappointments of their children? Yes. There's nothing that's more moving of of my heart and my life than having one of my children maybe come up to me with tear-filled eyes expressing to me some way that they've been disappointed or hurt. God is a good, good father. And as such, he cares for us and he loves us. He wants what is best for us. But sometimes what's best for us isn't what is easiest for us. Sometimes he'll allow us to go through trial, tribulation, difficulty, struggle. Why? Because he can use that to maximize his glory in our life and to change us and mold us and to make us into what he would have us to be. Friends, this morning, are you resting in this universal truth that God is sovereign sovereign over all things and all peoples at all times? Have you defaulted to your own way, your own understanding? Are you following the headlines of your favorite news outlet more than you're running to the word of God? And clinging to his promises as the hope for all the world? What does the world see from our news feeds and our Twitter feed, our Facebook feed? 
They see us placing more hope in our government, more hope in legislation, or do they see us instead running to the foot of the cross and clinging to the gospel? The grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is our only hope for this uncertain times that we live in. Friends, have you seen God's sovereign plan working through the disappointment of Jacob? I pray that you have. And I pray that if you're experiencing disappointment today, that you will take hope. That you will be encouraged and emboldened to remember that no matter where you think you are from disappointment, that God is working and he desires to use that in your life for his name. Let's close the word of prayer this afternoon. Father, we thank you and praise you. You are God. I pray, Father, this afternoon that you would do a work that only you can do. If we're struggling with disappointment, we've maybe even moved on to um, becoming bitter or uh, cynical about our relationship with you because of ways that we feel like we may have been let down where our expectations didn't match up with your will. Father, I pray that you would work in that individual's heart and this afternoon and they remember who you are and that you love them, that you care for them, and that you are working out your will in and through that situation. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.